Okay, hello, welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. It is Sunday. I am Jason Napolitano, and on the line, Mr. Chris Sheridan. What's going on? Uh, just a fire in the mountains behind the house. Oh, that's all. In the huh? foothills, San Gabriel. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, it's a weekly fire. I'm telling you, man. Well, we are sending out uh, sending out good energy to everyone in California. It's always uh, rough this time of year with the fires. So. Hope you guys are all doing all right out there. Um, okay, so this week we are doing an interesting thing on the Cosmic Eye Show. Uh, we're getting into some uh, some manual, as if we've never done that before. Wow! So actually, <laughs> how, do you, how do you like that? We're gonna we're gonna touch on something really new. We're gonna get into Manly Hall, but actually, we haven't been into the secret teachings for a while. So this is uh, is, a re- is a little bit of a refresher for us. So we're going back to our, our secret teachings, at least for today. Uh, we're looking at chapter 42, XLII, for the Roman numeral challenged. Uh, and in the secret teachings reader's edition, um, the one that Torture Penguin publishes, this is page 592. It's called The Cross and the Crucifixion in Pagan and Christian Mysticism. Uh, we're going to go off of this chapter, and then we're going to kind of use it as a base for, for talking about the cross, the idea of crucifixion, uh, some of the symbolism in, in Christianity, esoteric Christianity, and other, uh, and other cultures, traditions as well. Um, and, then we may t- and then at the end, we're going to talk uh, a bit about some of the psychological and spiritual implications. It's, it's going to be pretty loose, but I think we're going to really get into some great stuff that's going to be helpful. Uh, invaluable and kind of a, if you're not familiar with more esoteric um, interpretations of Christianity, it might be kind of new for you. Uh, it's a good uh, a good kind of introduction to that then for you. So uh, thank you for joining us. We appreciate all you being here each Sunday. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Uh, thank you for supporting us to our supporters who are financially supporting us and. Uh, Please, uh, if you can, make a small donation each month at anchor.fm slash cosmic eye and check out uh, Chris's book, The Spirit in the Sky, or my book, uh, If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. Both of those are available on Amazon. If you want to get a hold of us, you can get a hold of us through chrissheridan.com or cosmiceye.org. All right, so that housekeeping is out. Is out. Uh, we've finished that, and now we can jump right into some secret teachings and the wisdom of Mr. Manley Hall, who uh, was sharing the wisdom of the ages through this book. And interestingly enough, I don't know why I like to share this, but I think it's kind of important. You know, he saw himself as a as a sort of a torchbearer of this ancient wisdom, sharing it, uh, but by no means um, someone who was coming up with new information or or coming up with anything novel. But he saw as a figure in a long line of these uh, mystical teachers and philosophers who uh, who shared this ancient wisdom, um, do you have anything to add to that? I know you uh, you know quite a bit more about Manly Hall than I do. So, yes, this book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, uh, was published in 1928, uh, but he spent probably six years directly working uh, on the book. Um, it was going to be two volumes, and it became this one large book uh, with a lot of paintings. There's so many color plates, I think 54 in total. And as a book of symbolism, he wanted to have symbols, (laughs) diagrams and pictures. So it's really rich uh, in the text, which mainly we're dealing with now because we're going off the reader's edition. 
um, but there's a lot of you know visual symbolism too and he felt that yes in this tradition of and it's not just keeping the lamp alight and resharing this stuff it's also repackaging it in a way you know a lot of this and he this is an encyclopedia encyclopedia it's the encyclopedic outline as it's called the official title of the book that and he sources you know higgins and blavatsky and you know a lot of other people from before but i think one of his great roles is that he was able to gather all this old information uh, and bring it together in a single book uh, that could be shared by a 20th century westerner um, which is what needs to be done in this century and the next century you know uh, that this knowledge is ancient, but maybe the ways in which the stories are told or a book is printed, of course, now we'd probably have an online version of it that you can cross-reference. Uh, but that is the role. It's both the original source information uh, and it's also the presentation uh, so that this generation, this century, uh, can approach it. Great, uh, great information. Thank you for sharing that. And. Um... In addition, just like you said, I mean, you know, this, he, he wrote this for the 20th century, but, you know, in, in a way, I mean, I guess we're kind of carrying forward the next iteration of it by sharing it on a podcast in the 21st century, right? And, but it's still, it's still one of these things where you, regardless of what, where the information is heard about this book, it is something you want to have a physical copy of. You know, because you can look at it online and you can see all the color plates and, you know, you can listen to videos about it and listen to us talk about it. But the fact is, is it's just a really it's a beautiful book. And if you get one of the larger ones, one of the big books, uh, if you can find one on eBay or on Amazon for a fairly decent price, which is getting harder and harder, snap it up. Uh, these are amazing books. They're beautiful. And they just it's just not the same as. As looking at it online, holding it in your hands and kind of having a big imposing copy of this book. It's, there's something really quite impressive about it. And it's a very aesthetic book. It's put together very beautifully. The typefaces, the the printing, the just everything about the book, the way it's laid out. And there's 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 a lot in the way that the book is laid out that's symbolic. You know, we've talked a little bit about this and you can go back and listen to some of our other other uh, some of our other podcasts on the secret teachings and on Manly Hall, we talk a little bit more about. I think our very first podcast, actually, we we did a, a rundown on the secret teachings itself, and so you can learn more about the book there. But it, it's it's one of these things where the book itself is sort of a symbolic instrument. It actually is designed and put together to open up, you know, your your sort of aesthetic sense and that sort of unconscious reception to these symbols. Um, so that's that's an important part of it. So I would highly recommend uh, if you can get it, you know, even, even these little readers editions are, are nice, too, and stuff to study. And that's what we're studying from, because the big one's kind of cumbersome. But it really is a nice book to have. It's a, it's a really great piece uh, to own for your library. So, all right, without further ado, let us jump into this. Speaking of that, you brought up symbols. I want to talk a little bit about that before we jump into this, because sometimes it, it can be it's sort of a, uh, I don't want to say a dangerous path, but I guess kind of a dangerous path in a way, looking at things symbolically and quote unquote mythologically and metaphorically. Oftentimes it 
you know, for some people that can be um, kind of dangerous in terms of their, their faith. It seems to kind of, um, I don't know what to say it like uh, sort of did, did, kind of puts a crack in their faith or something like that to think of something as being symbolic or, or metaphoric. The, the thing about symbolism that's so great is that it, it doesn't require an either or interpretation. You can literally believe in these ideas and these different stories and still at the same time extrapolate out, you know, spiritual messages and metaphorical and mythological messages and esoteric messages from them. Um, you know, it can be it can be somewhat of a challenge if you're stuck in that literal interpretation, but it is possible to hold both views at once. And that's one of the things that I want to encourage is, you know, being in the tension between those opposites of whether or not, you know, this is historical, literal fact and whether or not the stories, for example, in the Bible or, you know, the stories of Jesus and different things that he's doing are, you know, more metaphorical and mythological uh, accounts. And I'm not saying, and not, you know, which is which. I don't know. Um, you know, so I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from a certain type of belief. We're just really, all we're trying to do is add to uh, certain beliefs and ideas. And I think most of our listeners here are open to these interpretations or, you know, you wouldn't be here. Uh, but, but at the same time, we also can't forget the historical and sort of actual live life of a lot of the people that are in these accounts and, and so on that we hear. Uh, so, so try to stay in the middle between that, that tension. It'll give you more of an understanding and a deep, I think a deeper appreciation for this work. It's sort of a razor's edge and what that'll, you know, that's going to come into play when we talk a little bit more about the psychological interpretations and the esoteric interpretations at the end and how they apply to our lives. So just kind of keep that in mind as you're listening to, to some of these, uh, some of these um, ideas that Chris and I are presenting today. Well, I think what you're getting at is that mm -hmm. for some people, it's possible that having a kind of a mushy metaphorical, symbolic interpretive uh, version of these symbols somehow takes away from their strength if they are there otherwise you know. perceived yeah, as that's fact. that's a better way to put it. Excellent. You know, it's not really a threat. And I like how you said it's adding to it. If, you know, if your belief is that, you know, this is exactly true and it happened this way and this is exactly what it means and it's a very literal symbol, um, that's, that's not going to be challenged hmm. by adding this other layer. I think it actually expands and makes it even more exciting. Um, I completely agree. It has such agree. broader and deeper implications. Yeah. Uh, but yes, there is a tendency that it's like, oh, this is challenging, or it shakes it off its truth foundation if it could also mean this and also mean that. Yeah. Uh, it's more, it's not in either words, it's in addition and it's enriching. And that's, I think, what, what Hall was about too is, you know, adding to the dialogue. He yeah. was very much a Christian mystic and, um, you know, held, held these truths um, very dearly. Um, and he was able to look at them symbolically and metaphorically. And I think that strengthened his faith more than it did take away from it. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think that's more of a classical mystic interpretation to begin with of any faith, if you're, whether you're a, you know, a, a Sufi Muslim, Muslim or, you know, a, a mystical Christian or, you know, a Kabbalistic, um, a Jew or, or what have you, you know, it's a more a sort of universal interpretation, generally speaking, of, of these ideas. And there's more openness um, for exploration in the mystical uh, mindset, let's call it.
So that's the approach that we're taking is there's a, is a deep reverence and love and understanding um, and, you know, the power and the depth and beauty in these messages. And at the same time, being open enough to say, OK, what about uh, let's take this to another level and look at it in this way or that way. Or let's let's look at it as a metaphor for life or what have you, you know, and, and, and doing that in a very in a very reverent and respectful way. So that's what we're trying to do. So let me start out here. I want to just kind of read through what Manly Hall has to say at the beginning of this, and it's going to just kind of set 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 our course in some ways of how these these interrelated ideas work together. It's a nice um, it's a nice story. It's from uh, the Orea Legenda by Jacobus de Vorgain or Vorgain. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, but it is a it's a folk tale um, with biblical characters in it. And it speaks about this tree of life, this cross, and it's kind of path through all these biblical characters. So we'll start out with this. So basically, it's, it starts with um, it starts with uh, Seth, and Seth is the son of Adam, and Adam is at the near at, at the end of his life, and he sends Seth out to find this oil of mercy which God had promised mankind. Uh, so Seth sets out on this path, and I'll just read then from, from Manly Hall's work, and then we'll kind of discuss it a little bit and see how it kind of fits into the whole scheme of things. So, Seth, following the directions of his father, discovered the Garden of Eden without difficulty. The angel who guarded the gate permitted him to enter, and in the midst of the garden, Seth beheld a great tree, the branches of which reached up to heaven. The tree was in the form of a cross and stood on the brink of a precipice which led downward into the depths of hell. Among the roots of the tree, he saw the body of his brother Cain. Cain, of course, his brother who killed his other brother, Abel, Seth's third brother, held prisoner by the entwining limbs. The angel refused to give Seth the oil of mercy, but presented him instead with three seeds from the tree of life. Some say the tree of knowledge. With these, Seth returned to his father, who was so overjoyed that he did not desire to live any longer. Three days later, he died. And the three seeds were buried in his mouth, as the angel had instructed. The seeds became a sapling with three trunks in one, which absorbed itself into the blood of Adam. So the life of Adam was in the tree. Noah dug up this tree by the roots and took it with him into the ark. After the water subsided, he buried the skull of Adam under Mount Calvary and planted the tree on the summit of Mount Lebanon. Moses beheld a visionary being in the midst of this tree, the burning bush, and from it cut the magic by which he was able to bring water out of a stone. But because he failed to call upon the Lord the second time, he struck the rock and was not permitted to carry the sacred staff into the promised land. So he planted it in the hills of Moab. After much searching, King David discovered the tree, and the son Solomon tried to use it for a pillar in his temple, but his carpenters could not cut it so that it would fit. It was always either too long or too short. At last, disgusted, they cast it aside and used it for a bridge to connect Jerusalem with the surrounding hills. When the Queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon, she was expected to walk across this bridge. Instead, when she beheld the tree, she refused to put her foot upon it, but after kneeling and praying, removed her sandals and forded the stream. This so impressed King Solomon that he ordered the log to be overlaid with golden plates place uh, above the door of his temple there it remained until his covetous grandson stole the gold and buried the tree so that the crime would not be discovered 
From the ground where the tree was buried, there immediately bubbled forth a spring of water, which became known as Bethesda. Bethesda. To it, the sick from all Syria came to be healed. The angel of the pool became the guardian of the tree, and it remained undisturbed for many years. Eventually, the log floated to the surface and was used as a bridge again, and this time Calvary and Jerusalem, uh, this time between Calvary and Jerusalem. And over it, Jesus passed to be crucified. There was no wood on Calvary, so the tree was cut into two parts to serve as the cross upon which the Son of Man was crucified. The cross was set up at the very spot where the skull of Adam had been buried. Later, when the cross was discovered by the Empress Helena, the wood was found to be of four different varieties contained in one tree representing the elements, and thereafter the cross continued to heal all the sick who were permitted to touch it. So that's a very interesting uh, tale from the Middle Ages, and you see this 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 interesting idea of, of all the sort of iterations of this tree until the time it finally comes into its culmination where it's put on Golgotha where Jesus was crucified, literally over the top of the skull where Adam was buried. And that's, uh, there's, there's a lot of symbolism in that. And to unpack that whole story would, would take multiple shows. So we will just talk about one aspect of it, which I find very interesting. But the idea there that Jesus then is supplanting Adam basically as a new creation. He's the new Adam, more or less. He's this risen human being and this resurrected and perfected human being uh, that, you know, that redeem, that redeem humanity, you know, um, in the, in the idea of, you know, Orthodox Christianity, you know, Jesus died for the sins that Adam and Eve, uh, or the sin that Adam and Eve uh, were thrown out of the garden for which was eating from the tree of knowledge. So in this whole kind of cycle, you see this idea that Christ then is this, this new form of man, is this resurrected and perfected form of man. Uh, the, 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 the point where that actually occurs, though, is over this, this skull of Adam himself as the old kind of representation of, of humanity. And Jesus, of course, representing this new form of humanity. So... It's a very interesting story. I just wanted to kind of lay that. It's kind of long, but it's, it's interesting to me. And I, I think it it's, it's ties together all these different elements and it does it in such an interesting and creative way that you can kind of see that this tree of life idea, this tree of life, this tree of death, this crucifixion motif, this idea of, of the cross itself, how all these things are, are woven together and form such a deep part of... Um, both traditional Christianity and esoteric Christianity, as well as a lot of other uh, religious traditions that use the cross. And we'll, we'll talk about a bit of that uh, as we go on. Um, one thing I wanted to say too, in kind of conjunction with uh, what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, in terms of symbolism, a, a lot of times, you know, more traditional Christians find it, um, find it kind of annoying, I don't want to say annoying, but they, they tend not to like to hear about representations of things or symbolic things that take place in other religions that somewhat resemble Christianity. Um, and, you know, I think there's a certain, they feel threatened by the fact that there are these ideas running throughout other religions. And I've always found that to be kind of odd because for me, it's like, I guess the more the merrier, like the more, you know, if I see the more I see an idea out there 
the more that I see it universally accepted, the more I think that there's probably it. Whereas if just one person or one group has an idea, I tend to kind of think, well, why this unique idea amongst these people when we're all human beings and we all have very similar, you know, ways of being and psyches and so on, right? Like, do, do you know what I mean by that? Do, do you find that, yeah. that like the more sim- times you see a, a symbol repeated universally, it actually gives you sort of more faith in that symbol? Yeah, to me, it's strength of concentration. It doesn't, dilute, it, right? it doesn't dilute it. Yeah. Like, oh, well, it's a little here and it's a little there and it's a little everywhere. That sounds like you know, dilution, that, that you're reducing its power every time it gets repeated. But yeah, no, I, I think the other way. I think it gets confirmed. Yeah. And if Christianity or any other religion is, is to be universal, well, shouldn't it contain elements universal to all? Um, and exactly. maybe similar to other ones, if it is timeless, if it is all that powerful, uh, why wouldn't it uh, be in line with you know, many different people's beliefs. That, that's, and I think that's the core of what an archetypal idea is, is it's, it's a universal truth expressed in a sort of localized way amongst different cultures. Um, you know, and I think when you look at it like that, then it like, okay, I can see that. Yeah, it's, it's not exactly the same and it has its own little local variations and cultural sort of derivations and so on. But I can see that the depth of this archetypal idea in this particular thing. And, and so, you know, so to kind of get to the root of the, the cross itself, let's kind of look at some of the, some of the basic symbolism of the cross. I mean, one of the main things is, you know, there's, there's a, of course, a, a couple of different kinds of crosses. Well, there's actually hundreds of different kinds of crosses and say a couple, there's a, but there's three, three or four basic designs that most people are familiar with. Uh, one is the the sort of classic Christian cross with the high with a bar that ex- extends longer on the bottom, and then there's an equilateral, a so-called Greek cross. Uh, those are the crosses that you see more uh, in Native American culture and stuff, with all the same length of arms. And then there's, of course, the Ankh or the uh, what they call the Crooks Ansada. Uh, which is the one that has the kind of little loop on the top of it. And we're kind of all familiar with that from Egyptian mythology. Um, And then there's the Tau cross or the Tav cross, uh, which is like a letter T, basically. It doesn't have any crossbar on the top. Um, So those are all kind of variations on this sort of cross design. And those are the ones that kind of play out in different cultures. But again, they all have this sort of uh, universal um, archetypal idea within them. One of those being uh, this idea of spirit and matter meeting up together in that same in that same place. Let's call it. So there's the sort of vertical, which is the matter uh, portion of it, the vertical porn part of the of the cross, and then there's uh, excuse me, the horizontal part of the cross is the matter the horizontal, and then the vertical is the spirit or the, you know, the spirit coming into matter, basically. And so that's why, you know, the cross has an interesting sort of dual. I mean, this is just two two of the many meanings. Uh, but there's, you know, the idea of the tree of life and also an idea of a tree of, of, of death uh, associated with this. 
And the idea of crucifixion and the idea of hanging on a tree is not um, something that is unique to Christianity, as we were speaking about before. Um, and just some of the uh, things off the top of my head, without even kind of looking at the book, I know like uh, Addis, uh, Adonis, um, talking about Odin hung on a tree. Uh, or there was sort of, you know, there's these Dionysus had sort of a crucifixion tearing apart and a reassembling, not necessarily a crucifixion, but similar sort of mythology. Uh, Osiris. Um, are you in that section where all those are listed? Can yeah. You, can you give a few more of those? Sure. Well, Buddha and Krishna, Apollo, uh, Prometheus, who of course was uh, punished for giving uh, fire to man, and he was eternally punished by having a raven pluck out his liver every night until uh, I believe it was Hercules came to rescue him. Um, but also on uh, Quetzalcoatl uh, in the uh, Americas and uh, Jupiter uh, and Pythagoras is in there somewhere. So Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and I think you bring up, you know, this, this vertical and the horizontal that shows up just that alone is such a rich symbol because you have the transcendent, this vertical that goes, you know, presumably the base of it is planted in the earth like a tree. Uh, so it's fully connected with matter and then the vertical extension moving upwards towards the heavens. And then this horizontal component, you could also see that in the Christian gospel of the fatherhood of God, which is that transcendent, the vertical, and then the brotherhood of man, which is this horizontal reaching out um, to each other. And then, of course, the right angles <laughs> of a square or a cross. Then you have proportion, you have geometry and you know, Freemasonry, truing things up. Uh, and it all goes, it really connects with the body. Because really in our human structure, you know, if you stand up with your arms stretched, uh, the vertical bones from your feet to your skull, that's the longest part in your spine, all 33 vertebrae are right there in the middle. And then what comes if you with outstretched hands, your arms and fingers, it's the horizontal component. And with the blood vessels, they all meet, the horizontal and the vertical meet in the heart. So it's so rich with symbolism and it's part of our DNA. It's part of our body. It's our anatomy. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that, that... So that's how, how more universal can you get if it's in your body or if it's in the stars or something that you, you, know, you see every day. What could be more universal than that? Unless you're some other creature or some other being that maybe has a different body, but here on Earth with human beings, if it mimics or somehow you know, plays to the imagery and structure of the body, well, then that's, that's everybody in every sense of the word. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. I think it, uh, you know, it also there's the, the, you know, there's the four, the element of four like sort of quaternity sort of um, symbolism that plays into the swords here that I mean, into the cross, so that you've got the, the four, the four basic elements in there with air, wire, or water and fire. Those are the four building blocks of, of matter in the in ancient wisdom and ancient philosophy. Um, and then, of course, you got the four directions, and you know it's great in uh, native symbolism with a with a medicine wheel, which is basically a circle with a plus sign yeah. in the middle, oriented north, 
uh, you know, for ceremony of the medicine wheel, very uh, sacred. Very and, powerful. And yeah. And it's similar to the, the mandala symbolism of, of Buddhism, where it's this kind of um, focusing point and so on. And this is, again, this this meeting of of uh, the finite and the infinite. Uh, then you've got the the four you've got the four fixed signs of the zodiac on there as well. You got Tor, uh, Taurus, Scorpio, um, you got Leo, and then you've got uh, Libra. Uh, the four evangelists: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, you know the four letters of the divine name of God: Yod Hey Vov Hey, in Hebrew. You know fit into this scheme. Uh, and there's a kind of an interesting thing where. And I, I didn't get a chance to look this up, but I, I, I want to want to do more research on this. Um, so the, the letters I N R I that are above uh, uh, that are above Jesus on the cross allude to this four four letter um, name. And actually, in um, in uh, Christian archetype, a Jungian commentary, Edinger, uh, a famous Jungian. Uh, talks a little bit about this and um, he points out how that is kind of a reinterpretation in a sense of sort of a, a, a new version of yod hey vov hey amongst the Christians. They're kind of in, intimating that I-N-R-I is this sort of thing, or it would be yod nun resh yod if it was in Hebrew, but it's generally um, shown in Latin, in Latin script. But uh, Albert Pike points out, this is in From Morals and Dogma, that the eye, the first eye is yamin, which means a sea or water in Hebrew, nur, which is fire. Uh, the second, R, or the R is ruach, which is air. And then um, yabesh, yabesha, uh, dry earth. So I need to double check those. I'm not too sure about that. It sounds more like Aramaic than it does Hebrew to me, but... Uh, but it's interesting. So I've, I've heard, heard other ones too. The INRI, mm -hmm. it's um, Jesus of Nazareth, Rex, um, which is king mm -hmm. of the Jews. Yeah, yeah. Yapetus, Nazarene, Rex. Jesus, you know, Nazareth. I for the J. Rex. You know, and Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm, king. But in this chapter, uh, in the secret teachings. I think that's the traditional one, right? That's the that's the Roman Catholic version. Well, of it. it's the one I, I've been most familiar with. Yeah. But here in this chapter, um, he says, above the head are inscribed the letters I-N-R-J. Calls the fourth one a J, whose yeah. most important meaning is in nobis regnant Jesus. When our, within ourselves reigns Jesus, which is... And nobis, where we get nobility and this knowledge, mm -hmm. gnosis, you know, like a noble person is somebody is, is um, noble uh, and knowledgeable, yeah. uh, basically. Yeah. So that this, you know, within ourselves reigns Jesus. And that's the heart of mysticism. Yeah, absolutely. God yeah. in you, you yeah. know, is the hope and glory. But I hadn't really seen that spelled out like this, literally, you know. Um, except for in this chapter. And, and I, that's the one I'm going with now. I like that. Within ourselves reigns Jesus. And yeah, that one's, that one's good. And I go I wrong think, with that. I think that J is kind of a, is a little confusing. It really is because there's no, there's no J in, in Latin. So they use IE. Uh, so I think it's just kind of transliterating the last I as J. But um <laughs> But, you know, if I, I, it's an interesting thing because uh, 
but the, but the idea behind it is definitely um, that's a great uh, a great way of looking at it. I want to look at the one for um, that he talks about in, uh, in Edinger's book here real quick. Let me find this. Uh, one thing I do want to point out though that I find very interesting um, is Jung's uh, Jung's and Jung's take on this. I want to I want to just read this really quickly. It's a short little. Uh, beginning of a chapter so basically what 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 uh, Edinger does is he takes Jesus's sort of mission as it were and breaks it down almost like the hero's journey into these different stages and then he looks at each one of those and so each of these is a separate sort of stage and that's an interesting way to look at the life of Christ in terms of the imitation of Christ the idea of being like Jesus is applying these these different uh archetypal experiences that jesus has in your own life and see how they apply to your your own stages of development but so this crucifixion stage is where jung says the reality of evil this is the cross or the crucifixion the reality of evil and its incompatibility with good cleave the opposites asunder and leave inexorably to the crucifixion lead excuse me inexorably to the crucifixion and suspension of everything that lives since quote unquote the soul is by nature christian this result is bound to come as infallibly as it did in the life of jesus we all have to be crucified with christ quote unquote Uh, in other words suspended in a moral suffering equivalent to veritable crucifixion She's talking about the idea of the, the, the tension between the opposites, between good and evil, between right and wrong, and black and white, and you know all the all the opposites, male and female, and so on, where we find ourselves. And you know, and part of the union work is to reconcile and be able to live with these opposites in a sort of a middle point, kind of a middle way. And that cross sort of represents, if you look at it, that intersection between those two two opposites and the, the tension that it, that, it, that, that it does require um, in order to find some some salvation or some resurrection from that you, you know the crucifixion and you know symbolically can be seen as that um, that sort of pain that we feel you know living uh, you know we know that there's a spiritual immortal side of ourselves and then we live in this body that we know is destined to die you know, from the very beginning. And so that's, you know, that's one of the great tensions that we live with as human beings. But uh, let me talk a little bit then about, let's get back to this INRI, I-N-R-I. Another image of the reborn self appears in, I'm reading from Edinger, in in the sign of the four letters, I-N-R-I, that is attached to the cross in the conventional representation. So these letters stand for Jesus, Nazarenus, Rex, Judeorum, Judeorum, Jesus, King of the Jews. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In effect, they constitute a new tetragrammaton. That's the Yodhavali I was speaking of. In the Old Testament, Yahweh's name was neither vocalized, never vocalized, and appeared only as uh, the four consonants, yod He, Lov He. Significantly, this is a quaternity, which is at the same time a triad, since once, of the four, once one of the four letters is duplicated, uh, the dilemma of three and four, and this goes beyond what we're talking about today, but it's an interesting idea, the difference between a, the, the three and the four. Uh, four in Jungian terms is seen as a number of wholeness and completion, it adds the feminine element, 
and again, it's, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole psychology that revolves around this that goes a little bit beyond what we're talking about. It's something to touch on. Um, and the other thing that I like this a lot, he talks about how, um, this, this he's, uh, and just quoting from, uh, uh, from Jean, uh, Danielu, a biblical scholar. And he said, he, uh, Christ is the peace between us and has made the two, uh, Jew and Gentile into one and broken down the barrier, uh, which used to keep them apart. This was to create one single new man in himself out of the two of them. And by restoring peace through the cross to unite them both in a single body and reconcile them with God. So he sees the cross as this sort of place of reconciliation, of breaking down barriers, of, uh, you know, reconciling opposites and things like that. Um, and then there's also the idea that's amongst people. So that, that would actually be the, the, the horizontal uh, portion of the cross. And then the vertical would be the breaking down of uh, the separation between uh, the spiritual side and then, then the material side of man. So there's this idea that there's a sort of a wall separating the spiritual side of us from the, you know, the material existence. And so that the, the cross actually represents, the, again, the reconciliation of the sort of above and below, as above, so below, as they say in the hermetic world, right? Uh, so those are, interesting, those are interesting ideas as well for the cross. Um, let us talk a little bit about some of these ideas and how we can put them into work in our own life. So in other words, some of these psychological and spiritual attributions and so on. Um, do you want to start in with that? I've been going on for a while. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's this God man, you know, the spirit being, um, how do you get the, you know, genie in the bottle, um, this reconciliation and this intersection and coming together, they actually become stronger. I've been doing a lot of woodworking lately and, uh, doing some window frames and, Basically, it's just four sticks, but when you have the joints mortised out and you assemble it together, it instantly becomes very, very strong, very rigid uh, when all the pieces fit together. So I, I see this cross, you know, especially in a wooden version of, of these two things fitting together. Yes, you have the horizontal and the vertical, the matter and spirit, uh, but at the center where they, they intersect, they Actually, it creates a new symbol, and it is at the center, which like in the center of a medicine wheel, that's where the four directions combine and converge on the human soul. And it's from this centered place that we can move out through the world. So even just using the transcendent and eminent or the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, psychologically, that's a great thing to meditate upon. I mean, ask, ask yourself, you know, are we all human beings? Do we all come from the same lineage? Are we all related? Are we all brothers? Are we all not heir to the throne of the father to use that, that symbolism uh, if we are all God's children? So we're all equal uh, in the eyes of God. And that means we are equally available to receive the blessings 
not the haves and the have nots. You know, I think a lot of institutions have done that. So uh, I look at that symbol and that's what it conjures up for me. And I can look at that fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man and apply that to the different social issues that are going on or a host of other, um, you know, relationships, even in my life, you know, personal relationships. And it's like, oh, all right. Yeah, we're all God's children. Okay. Yep. This person who <laughs> really upset me um, is actually my brother, <laughs> my sister. Um, and like families, sometimes we don't all get along, but, but we have to love them just the same. So it actually affects how I look at my relation to other people and to spirit uh, just by using that one aspect of this symbol. But he goes on uh, towards the end of this chapter and um, talking about Jakob Berme, the great uh, German shoemaker mystic from the Middle Ages. And um, we can launch off from this that what, according to him, the cross symbolizes is the surrender of your self-will or your small s self or your ego nature or this separated individual sense that has to be put away that has to be nailed to the tree because it belongs in the material world so that the spirit that's been embodied in the human can be released so it's a release of something more than it is sort of the destruction of something else so we can talk about that yeah as yeah. psychological uh, the very psychological aspect of this that's a great point. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's interesting because in, uh, in Jungian psychology, that, that's, uh, that would be the, uh, the ego self access that Edinger talks about. So you're creating this sort of um, connection between ego and self where basically the self with a capital S, you sort of usurps control of, of the, you know, of our lives. And we, we talk about that quite a bit in a lot of our Emmett Fox stuff because Emmett Fox uh, talks a lot about you know letting God be in charge and so on. It's that same kind of idea. It's a very it's a shift out of the ego uh, into a more spiritual outlook and into being sort of uh, more inner uh, inner directed. I guess you'd call it. You know, you're, you're receiving sort of um, an inner inner guidance and inner direction that you're following, as opposed to listening to the outside world to the egos you know, needs and desires and to your, you know, your own sort of, um, let's say, uh, baser instincts and things like that, you know, and not, not, not that life is, you know, all baser instincts, but just, you know, you're trying to rise above and refine yourself and move away from, you know, from, from more negative actions and so on and being more harmonious with others and, you know, acting in a more loving way those sorts of things, you know, kind of moving away from selfishness and e egotism and pride and, and some of these, some of these more uh, negative things that we have, you know, not a, a healthy self-esteem. Obviously we need to keep that and we need to be able to have a, a, a center of ego, which, you know, which guides us. But in the end though, the idea is that you're allowing God to move in and be your senior partner, as we talked about the other day on our Fox show. It's the same idea, you know, this, this is sort of, 
this this crucifixion idea is is you know is is the idea of of letting of letting go of of the ego in some ways symbolically speaking um and you know and, and rising up and ascending and transcending the limitations of of our of our sort of human um of our human ego as it were and um connecting to something greater and also that idea of separation then also is at play so it's the idea that i'm this separate individual uh alone by by him or herself you know here we are on this planet and yeah let me out. just read that last uh oh please uh, yeah, from the last that. paragraph Absolutely. the last i think two sentences really uh really sum that up i think we're, we're on topic uh with this it said one of the most interesting interpretations of the crucifixion allegory is that which identifies the man Jesus with the personal consciousness of the individual. It is this personal consciousness that conceives of and dwells in the sense of separateness. And before the aspiring soul can be reunited with the ever-present and all-pervading Father, this personality must be sacrificed so that the universal consciousness may be liberated. So it's a birth as much as it is a death. This tr tree is a symbol of life, a symbol of death. But what you are killing, if you want to just use this, um, is this sense of separateness. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's what Aurobindo called the original ignorance. It's his version of the original sin, is that you think you're a separate thing. You're out there in space, and it's dog-eat-dog, dog, uh, every man for himself. And you hope that somehow you're going to be redeemed at some future state, whereas you're not connected. There isn't total interconnectedness, again, with these two uh, points of the cross connecting. Uh, so that's it's the inter the, the feeling of separateness. Mm -hmm. You have to lose it. If you want to become one with God in the universe, you can't do both. Yeah. You know, maybe that's the straight and narrow. You can't think, oh, yeah, I've got this and I'm going to do this all on my own, or I have to do it by myself, or I'm all alone in the world, mm -hmm. um, just trying to, you know, find my way home. It's like, no, actually, you're not. Uh, that's the underlying universal message. There is a unified field theory. You know, there is this interconnectedness of all things, of all matter, of all spirit, uh, that we're very much part of. And I think that would be so comforting for people and problems wouldn't uh, arise to such uh, the level that they are if you realize we're all connected, deeply connected in a meaningful way, in a good way. Um, and this me versus you or the us versus them or this versus that, we live in this very polarized, that doesn't live in the universal consciousness. You can't have that. They're, they're actually diametrically opposed they, they by definition yeah if all is one you can't have well it's this versus that and and so this this universal consciousness is liberated interesting that by nailing it to the, the things you're talking about base base instincts or you know emotional outbursts all these kind of lower parts of our nature or this feeling of separateness and aloneness Mm -hmm. uh, that has to be nailed to the tree. And in doing so, you're actually releasing, you're liberating what's already there. This is an untrapping of this materialization. But symbolically, 
we need to crucify those things ourselves in our own life. And one image I use for this crucifying or nailing to a cross or a tree, uh, imagine uh, like a cork board or something, and you have all these pins and labels attached to you all stuck in your body. One is I'm separate, I'm alone, I'm, you know, I have to compete to live. I have to, all these notions um, must fight. It's a struggle, it's doggy dog. If you can pull those out, like a post-it note, you pull it out in the pin, then you stick that pin on the board and that's where it lives. It doesn't live in you. You're actually releasing by removing some of these labels and these limiting, a very conflicting, uh, meaning in conflict with other people, uh, put those on this imaginary corkboard or cross, if you will, uh, pull them out uh, from the pin and the nail that's got them stuck in you. It's the unstuckingness and placing them. They go somewhere, but that's where they go. They belong on this wood, on this board, on this tree, on this cross. And if they're not on you, then what is on you? Well, you have the freedom and liberation to reconnect and be in tune and in touch and in communion with this universal consciousness. Wow, great point, great point. Um, you know, and then of course, you know, lastly, as we'll kind of wrap this up, you know, there's this idea and this should give, you know, give you some, some hope and some strength, this idea throughout all of these different uh, living and dying and resurrecting uh, divinities, and uh, particularly with, uh, this, you know, this, this with Jesus, is this idea of, you know, eternal life, that the death of the body does not signify the end, uh, that there is this immortal part of ourselves that lives on. And that, of course, is, is uh, which we didn't really touch on, but that, of course, is um, symbolized by the resurrection itself. Uh, you know, in, in, in these stories that, um, in the other stories that kind of parallel these, like I said, with Odin and with, you know, Apollo and with uh, Adonis and uh, Dionysus and, and uh, Krishna and so on, you know, the same idea pervades these stories, this idea of eternal life. Um, and that the death of the body does not end end life. And so, you know, these stories are meant to, to also sort of hearten us and give us, uh, give us the faith to move into death as a new, really as just a new stage, as just a transition, because really what dies and what is born, if the spirit is eternal and infinite, you know, that, that you have to ask yourself. And so if you can get in touch with that, that part of yourself, which is this eternal, spiritual, um, how can I say it's just infinite energy that's connected to divinity you know then you don't need to fear death and you can let go of grasping onto it so tightly to where you're constantly in fear that something's going to happen or constantly in fear that you're going to you know you're going to leave your family behind and they're not going to be taken care of or that some illness or sickness is going to overcome you or something like this when you realize that, look, you know, God is in charge and, you know, there's a part of yourself that is eternal and, you know, death is inevitable. Sure, we, we don't want to hasten it, but, you know, we're not really in, in, in charge of when that occurs. So just to, to be able to have that anchor, that strong anchor of that eternal idea 
uh, that, that gives us confidence as we move through life, that can be an important thing to, to look at. So do you have anything else to, to add to round this out? Uh, well, great point. You know, to conquer death, you only have to die. Uh, but this all can be done while we're living in this body, in this lifetime. Good point. Yeah. And that's the real, you know, trans transmutation. It's the alchemical process that winds up with the philosopher's stone, this elixir of life. Um, it's really the end of all great works is to get to this philosophic death, this second birth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. as it were, the first one through water and the second one through fire, um, that, uh, that but we don't have to wait until you actually That's a great die. point. Exactly. Uh, in fact, have that in part fact, of you, you die today. To. Yeah, you want to you try to, you, no. you want to, you know, struggle for that, for that knowledge and for that, for that, uh, that integration. That's a good point. While you're still alive. And that's part of, part of our life's uh, purpose is to find that in life to find that philosophic death, to achieve that uh, philosopher's stone, right? So great point, great point. You don't, uh, you don't need to wait until you, until you die. But it's, it's, it's heartening to know, though, that, you know, the physical, you know, ceasing of the physical body does not mean the end of existence, you know, and, and uh, you know, the great, all the great traditions, all the great religions, all the great philosophic uh, schools of thought say the same thing so uh keep keep that in mind uh all right well thank you chris i appreciate your input today i think this is a great show and i hope that you guys got something out of it um do uh do check out this uh this chapter in the secret teachings if you have it uh on the cross and the crucifixion um i think you will enjoy it very much and like i said i also uh, recommend the christian archetype by edward edinger um, as well as Jung's, I didn't really get into it much, but Jung's, uh, symbols of transformation collected works five has quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of information in it as well on these, on these different symbols. So, um, all right. Well, thank you for joining us. We're here each week on Sunday and on Friday, we have our, uh, our Emmett Fox show as well. So join us for that. Uh, thank you, Chris, for your input today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, we will be back next week with a new episode. Uh, if you can, support us at CosmicEye.org slash, excuse me, anchor.fm slash CosmicEye. Uh, or you can visit us at CosmicEye.org or at ChrisSheridan.com. Um, have a great week. Uh, goodbye and God bless.